Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. You know, when most entrepreneurs go to sell their business, there's a couple of things that are usually on their minds. Of course, you know, the first one is always going to be valuation, right? Am I going to get the value that I want and what I believe my business is worth? But, you know, money's only part of the story, right? Like there's an enormous amount of weight that you need to put onto the actual terms and conditions that come with that money, right? What are the kind of hooks? Now, this is never more of an issue than selling professional services companies. And, and for obvious reasons, right? You know, if you have a professional services company, it is people-centric. And invariably, that puts a whole bunch of risk around key dependencies on certain individuals and usually the founders. So, and, and you know how this goes, right? You know, they start companies, they're kind of the, you know, the main show, they attract the clients, they're the rainmakers, they're great at delivery, they do all this stuff and they live and breathe the business and and, and as you can imagine, I mean, most buyers would be looking at that and saying, well, we want you to come with the deal, at least for a period of time. And so, you, you know, if you sell your business for a million bucks, often what they find is you're only getting a little a portion of that million bucks, maybe, maybe not even half of it up front. And then a big chunk of it can often be paid over time and some of it as an earnout, meaning that some of it's at risk and it's based on you as the owner hitting certain criteria to get paid. Now, clearly that's less than ideal. You know, nobody wants to take on that kind of risk. And, and most people after they've built their business want to be able to take that value off the table immediately. That's why my next guest is so important. Pete Martin had a business called EntryPoint. Now, EntryPoint sold to KPMG. Uh, it was a consulting business of sorts. And he sold that business, first of all, for a whopping 12 times EBITDA. Now, for starters, on a valuation level, that's kind of off the chart compared to most businesses. You know, you don't hear of a lot of professional services companies selling at those levels to start with. It was an eight-figure sum, so it was a substantial, life-changing kind of wealth. But what was really curious about this deal is that when he sold, he actually sold it without having to hang around, without having an earnout without having to be tied to this deal for the next two, three, five years. You know, it was a clean break. He got paid and he got to move on. Now, if you've got a business and you're thinking you might want to sell one day, I'm pretty sure that what Pete shares with us in this episode is going to add an enormous amount of value to your thinking. 
And I'm just sure you're going to enjoy the show because Pete's just such a lovely bloke. So enjoy the journey. I hope you get a lot out of it. This is Pete Martin. Hey, Pete, welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. It's great to be on the show. And uh, I just, I'm such a big fan of yours and I look forward to having this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. And and the feeling's mutual, you know, um, and, and, and just full disclosure here for anyone listening, I, I have met Pete before. We, I had the pleasure of chatting to him probably a little over 12 months ago. Um, we do dance in some similar circles, which is how we have got to know each other. But um, no, I've always, uh, always enjoy your time, Pete, and really love your perspective on things. So, um, so yeah, thank you. Awesome. My pleasure. I know we're going to um, get to the point of chatting to uh, chatting about your business entry point, which you sold, and then of course you know what you do today. But you know, perhaps just to kick things off for the for the listeners, maybe you could just give us a little bit of your background and, and kind of what led to to you starting Entry Point. Yeah, so I was I'm genetically encoded an entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. My father was. My brother is, and so I don't think I had a choice. And so um, I actually started a car leasing company when I was 18 years old. And was kind of the classic snot nosed, you know, think I knew everything kind of kid, 18. And wow, starting a business at 18, particularly car leasing when, and that was way back when, when that was really not a common thing. And the world just kind of smacked me around. And so, um, did that for three and a half years, um, sold my franchise rights to another franchisee, got out by the skin of my teeth and decided to go to school at that point. So I kind of did everything a little bit opposite. And went to university and got a uh, bachelor's in an MBA in three and a half years. And then went the complete opposite direction. And I worked for IBM uh, for almost eight years. And then SAP and executive management for about seven. And um, in 2002, I was actually laid off from SAP. They, um, the long story, the short story is, it was kind of a reorg between two divisions, completely redundant management team. So all the management team of one of the divisions was basically let go. So two levels up, two levels down. But, you know, like any kind of opportunity, I, you know, I was kind of, I was getting tired. I told my boss, you know, six months before that, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do because you're not going anywhere and I want your job. And so, I, you know, <laughs> full disclosure, I'm kind of looking. So it was, it was really kind of a blessing. So I, I spent actually about another six months after SAP as a COO for a software company. Um, long story there, I did not get along with the CEO, so I quit and said, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's time to go scratch this entrepreneurial itch again. So um, after I had left, um, a guy who had built, sold, raised $80 million of venture capital, took his company public, took it private again, wanted one more bite at the apple. Um, And so he reached out and said, hey, let's go start up this systems integration consulting firm around SAP. So I agreed to do that. And that's that's how I got started with EntryPoint. And that was EntryPoint, yeah. So... I'm always curious, right? I mean, you you started off doing a bit of an entrepreneurial pursuit at a young age, so clearly you, you had a really solid taste of small business and what it's like to go through that kind of early stages. But then going to really the ultimately the the the, the biggest end of town, <laughs> um, back to doing your own thing was there was there a bit of a mind shift there? Like, how, had you become a little institutionalized, or or did it feel like putting on an old coat? Wow, that's an interesting question. So I'll tell you a funny story is about when I interviewed with IBM, coming from the entrepreneurial venture, right, in school, um, I sat down with this branch manager. So this guy ran about a $500 million business, okay? Huge book of business. And 
But when I was interviewing, he said, yeah, I run my business and blah, 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 blah. And I said, you don't run your business. And he's like, what? And I said, <laughs> so if your team doesn't sell anything tomorrow, are you going to be paid? And he's like, well, yes, of course. And I said, then you're not running a business, right? And I'm sure he's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. what a jerk, right? <laughs> but, I, but I think, you know, he's like, he wanted a little bit of that energy in the organization. And so, so I don't think I ever really lost that, right? So both at, at IBM and SAP. And I think that the people, the management team and the team that I was around, um, I think appreciated that because I was never really the big institution guy. And so when I left both those organizations and kind of went back into the entrepreneurial thing, it was definitely going back to that comfortable coat for sure. Cause I never really took it off. Yeah. Nice. Nice. It's, it's funny. I had a similar experience going into one of the big banks here. You know, I, they said to me, we're hiring you because you're not from banking. The problem was they actually weren't ready for people not from banking. And it's, um, yeah, it can be quite a, quite a clash uh, in terms of ideals. So, yep, uh, for sure. So tell us a bit about EntryPoint. What, what, what did the business do? Yeah, so um, there's a software package uh, uh, from a company out of Germany called SAP, for those who are not familiar with it. So it is uh, um, basically a financial system and manufacturing procurement. It's the system that runs, literally, that runs most of the companies in the world today. Literally, it runs the operations. And so instead of building a consulting force to implement that software, they partnered with lots and lots of companies from the big guys, from Deloitte and Accenture or whoever, to companies like mine. Um, and so uh, we focused on small and mid-sized um, enterprises, any company below 500 million in revenue. Uh, and so we would um, actually resell the software. We had a separate company that did that. Um, and then we would actually go do the consulting work to implement that software in those companies. Uh, we then later built a, um, a business process outsourcing firm. So there was a particular set of software around import, export, and trade, global trade management. And we approached a couple of companies about literally outsourcing that entire function to us. And so we started up that group. And so I essentially had three independent businesses all part of the kind of in and around the SAP software. Yeah, nice. So they all kind of overlap and offer leverage to each other in a way. Correct. Yeah, yeah, and 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 t- typically, what was was the model? I mean, were you doing a lot of project based work? Was it ongoing kind of retainer styles? You know, what did that look like? Yeah, so it was a very traditional systems integration company, which was mostly project work, and um, the the billing went from you know we did some fixed price projects, but majority of it was time and materials, and so uh, you know the and and. and there were kind of two models in the systems integration space. You can have a bunch of independent contractors, right? Where cash flow is better because you don't pay your contractors until you get paid. Or you have employees, which is what we did, where it is a massive cash suck. And so the faster you grow, the more cash you consume. And that then tied to the fact that we were a project-based business. Your revenues were very, very lumpy, as they say. Um, and so when we had a big project, then everybody was off the bench. Profits were great. Cash was great. You know, if we had those times in between projects until a new one started up, we had people sitting on the bench and it hurt for a while. So, you know, it can be a a very profitable business, but again, very lumpy revenue, not as predictable as you'd like. And we'll kind of talk about, you know, before really two years before I sold it, how we started to really change the business to make the business much more attractive to a potential acquirer. Yeah, fantastic. How long were you running Entry Point before you did sell? Uh, let's see here. So it started in 2003 and we sold in 2014. So 
Okay, so 11, 11 odd years. And, yep. and I'm curious, so you, you started with this, um, you know, you've got a, a business partner. Was it just the two of you? Uh, correct, as the founders, yeah. Yeah. And, and did you have a discussion at that beginning, you know, about what the end game would look like and potential exit strategy? Did you, did you think you would start this business with the idea of selling it eventually? Yeah, we, we did. Um, we, we basically, our philosophy was, uh, and, and my business partner had um, bought and sold a ton of companies. As, as I mentioned, he took the company public, he took it private again. And so we basically sat down and said, look, we both want an exit at some point, but we don't want to predetermine or predestine what that exit looks like. It could be an LBO, it could be going public, it could be selling to a strategic, whatever it is. So let's just build a really, really valuable company because when you do that, then you have the maximum amount of options, right? And I know people, I know founders that literally will build a company to sell and you just make very, very different decisions and they typically are not positive for employees, right? And so, so it was kind of a, a twofold thing. So he wanted the second bite in an apple. He, at the time he was in his uh, early sixties. So we kind of put a time frame together about when he wanted to be bought out. We put a buy sell agreement in place for that. And then after that, you know, I own a, uh, nearly a hundred percent. We ended up bringing in a third partner, but we, we basically said, you know, once kind of that exit's done, then I can go do whatever ever exit in whatever time frame that I might want if that's or I could just continue to you know to be the chairman and, and just kind of let it go for a while so yeah yeah you know Pete I know you you and I we do a lot of similar work in terms of helping companies and and helping them build and understand value and ultimately even exiting you know I'm just curious as to what you see out there with with business owners around this mentality of exiting i mean uh, you know we we preach a lot about having in, having the end game in mind but i my experience I, I i think a lot of people struggle to get their head around it um i i don't know what what's your experience around all that yeah boy that's uh we could unpack a lot here <laughs> <laughs> you know i think that um so entry point was my the fourth company that I had sold technically. And so I had a very clear set of expectations and most business owners don't get the chance to exit. And if they do, it's usually their first one, right? And they have all these preconceived notions about what that means from the price they're going to get to the terms to are they going to get an earn out to what do they do after, you know, thinking through, okay, I'm going to get the best deal, but I forget that I've got to be an employee maybe for a couple of years. And so if I really upset and piss these guys off, I'm now working for a company where they hate me, right? And so uh, it's everything from just, I think it's just kind of either the wrong set of assumptions or expectations or just just naivety, right? Um, and really not understanding all of the dimensions to go into thinking through how do you do it right? How do you prepare for an exit properly so that you get the maximum valuation, you get the best deal terms? And then post-exit, what do you do, right? From, frankly, from managing your money to what are you going to do on a day-to-day basis so you don't drive your family crazy, right? Uh, so, yeah, just lots of conversations. And even a mental game of, you know, hey, somebody's going to write me a eight, nine, ten-figure check. Am I, am I, do I have enough self-work to, to deserve that? I mean, we've, I've, I've dealt with a founder that just didn't want to sell because he didn't want that huge check. Literally, crazy. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing what we, we tell ourselves sometimes. So can you give us a bit of a sense, you know, 11 years, you've started off with a couple of founders and an idea. What did the business look like by the time you did exit in terms of sort of size and, and all the rest of it? Yeah. So we, uh, when we exited that part of the business, uh, we, we had 
peeled off the, this um, business process outsourcing company that was 20 some people. We uh, basically spun off the software reseller piece that was about a dozen people. So the pure systems integration consulting, I think we had 38 people at that point. And about two years before the sale, I was just getting antsy. I'm a kind of your classic serial entrepreneur. I get bored after a couple of years. When it starts to get kind of routine and mechanized, I'm like, okay, I want to go do something else. Um, and so kind of I knew I was getting itchy um, and was not as enthusiastic and passionate about the business as I should have been, right, as the CEO and founder. And so I kind of had made that point of that, um, the decision at that point internally that, okay, it was time to kind of put the pieces in place to, to, to go towards an exit. And so one of the first things I did was I looked at how ingrained in the business I was, and it was deep. I was the main sales guy, right? I was doing the majority of the deals, reviewed every contract, like all of the stuff that typical, you know, we'd, we advise business owners not to do, I was doing. And what was really interesting was I looked at the leadership team and said, wow, these guys are actually unbelievable. And I, they're like, none of them are kind of rising up to their capacity. And so when I, when I made the decision, we kind of made two, two paths, two strategic decisions. One was, pull Pete out of the business on a day-to-day business, uh, on a day-to-day basis. And then the other one was figure out how we can get some recurring revenue streams and start to at least not necessarily get rid of all the lumpy revenue, but at least flatten it out a little bit, right? So when I first started pulling out of the business, I actually took, um, we, we the way we went to market is we uh, were much like an accounting law firm where you kind of ate what you kill. Um, and so most of these people were still billable and they were selling, but none of them had ever had formal sales training. So we send them through formal sales training and we did lots of workshops about objection handling and just how do you engage with a client, you know, and they were kind of doing it anyway, but there was normal, no formal structure. So we, we sent them through that. I pulled myself out of those situations and revenue went like this, right? It started and. And that was it's, that was a big hockey curve there for those who can't, can't see the video. Correct. <laughs> yeah, stick, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what's it's so funny because it's such an ego hit, right? You're like, yeah. oh my god, I've been holding back the company, right? <laughs> it's like, yes. these guys are killing it, and we're we're growing faster than we ever were when I was guy, the main guy doing the sales. And so, but that was really cool, and I, you know, uh, it was just kind of really cool to see them step up and to to see the organization kind of evolve without me being at the center of everything. A little scary. I mean, we put in some controls and, you know, we put in our own kind of internal systems that would put enough controls in place that I could sleep well at night. But it's, it's still, it's a bit of an ego, you know, hit a little bit, um, but also yeah. really, really cool too, just to kind of see these people step up. The, the other thing we did was we, we took a, we took basically our core project-based service offerings and we dissected it into these little kind of digestible pieces. And a couple of them, we made wedge offerings where we offered it for free or very little money to get people kind of, you know, working with us. But two of them, we made into recurring revenue stream uh, models that they, we just knew that this was something that every client asked for. It was kind of a pain in the butt for us. We staffed them differently. And then we turned it into just this retainer-based kind of recurring revenue stream. And that ended up being about 20, 25% of the business. Okay. And, and it really flattened that project-based curve and just had consistent cash flow and predictability and everything else. Tell me, with the whole point, I'm stepping back a bit, but with moving you out of the business and, and you know, taking the focus off you as the, the rainmaker, how long did that process sort of take before you could, you know, really recognize that it's, it's, it's now taken on a life of its own? 
Yeah, it was probably six months end to end. The first three months, I I would do kind of ride-alongs. So I kind of made this pronouncement. I said, this is kind of the direction we're going to move in. And I did this ride-alongs. And so uh, we basically did joint selling, but I would do a lot less talking. I, I was there, but I would really let them kind of hold the stage. And then what's we were both kind of comfortable, uh, all of us were comfortable that they could kind of take over. I just stopped attending the meetings and stopped yes. doing the sales at all. And then they call up and say, hey, I just got this you know, issue with a client or how should I deal with this, whatever. And you know, I just say, hey, just kind of, we would kind of talk through it. And so that kind of happened for another three to four months. And then they're like, Martin, we don't need you, man. We got, we got this. So <laughs> we're, 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 that's we're, lovely. Yeah, we're going to move. Yeah, I, I actually I'm, I'm surprised because I, I I was in my head thinking you might say 12 months or something like that. So uh, I, I mean, but it sounds like you know you've made this announcement and you've really kind of engaged it. Um, I, I I've got a little expression. I'm sure you've heard it as well. But you can't be half pregnant, right? And, right. and I think exactly this is right. the thing. With, yeah, like either do this or don't do this. But don't kind of half do it and meander along and send mixed messages to your staff and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, six months is fabulous. It's, um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of professional service people on this listening to this who go, wow, this is exactly what I need to be doing. You know, and, and it's funny because I think if I, if I look back at my SAP and IDM experiences, I had those situations where they would say, you know, Pete, we want you to run with this. And then the manager's there and the manager's kind of doing all the talking. So I saw what not to do. So I think that really helped when I said, we're going to do this. I just told myself, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that, right? I'm going to do this to your point, right? I'm going to do this right, and we're not going to be half pregnant. Yeah, yeah, perfect. I, I don't know if you're able to tell us, um, like the business by the time you sold it, can you give us a sense of revenue and stuff like that? Or, you know, anything that's sensitive, of course, please don't don't worry about. But <laughs> Yeah, under, under NDA with uh, KPMG, we're actually not allowed to release that stuff. But what I can say is um, we sold the business for 12 times EBITDA, which in the professional wow. services space is pretty phenomenal. And the yeah. most important thing was no earn out. Wow. Okay. So just to repeat that, <laughs> in case people are wondering if you misheard that, 12 times EBITDA with no earn out. Okay. So we, we need to unpack that because everybody is now sitting on the edge of their seats. <laughs> yep. So it was a kind of a funny story there. So, so in addition to putting the pieces in place for the business to be able to sell at a 12 times EBITDA valuation and, and to be able to sell it successfully, right? I started creating some strategic relationships with those companies that I thought would be a strategic buyer. One of them was yes. KPMG, okay? And so I was very thoughtful and strategic and kind of forward thinking about, you know, where I, I wanted to go. And, and what, the biggest reason that I did that was not from the acquisition perspective. I wanted to understand culture, right? Culture fits is, is incredibly important. And we had a phenomenal team and I wanted to serve them. I, I wanted to do the right thing for them, right? And going from our company, 30 some people to this, any giant company is this huge shift, right? And I wanted to make sure yeah. the culture was a good fit. And so once we started engaging with KPMG, we actually decided to do a joint pursuit together. We ended up not winning it, but we really started to understand how each other sells. And I, a big thing that I found out, and, and I kind of intuitively knew this, but they were in this uh, advisory business of really high bill rates, really short engagements, kind of like an audit, right? And so their bill rates were probably 50% higher, but their engagements were like a month or two, right? Like in an audit. Well, what they were doing is they were putting the, they were basically saying, this is what you need to do 
And then we were stepping in and going, okay, we'll do it. And guess what? We just have a year and a half project with 14 people, right? Or whatever. And so we were getting 10x the revenue of those guys. So a big part of kind of going through this in the initial phases was I could then paint the picture for them. And, you know, I literally wrote the narrative of why they should do the deal in the first place. I'm like, you know, if you guys got this book of business doing these small projects on the strategy work, then we're getting all the implementation work and it's 10x the revenues we're getting. So build the business case from that, right? So that was just a huge part of the whole strategic narrative and ended up going into the business plan. And I'm super glad to report that three years after the fact, they made all of their numbers in the business plan, which is really cool. Wow. That's great. But to go back to kind of the question about the no earnout. So um, we started doing the due diligence and you can imagine, you know, going through the due diligence of the fourth largest auditing company in the world, right? It was pretty tough, but we passed with flying colors, which was phenomenal. And we're kind of moving along. We're putting the asset purchase agreement together. It was 120 pages, I think. And everything was kind of moving along fine. And we hit this point after about six months where it just seemed to stall. And so I called up my business sponsor and I said, you know, what, what's going on? It's kind of communication stopped. You know, are you guys walking away from the deal or are you concerned about something? Like, what's up? And, so, Pete, uh, so Pete, business sponsor, sorry to interrupt you, but you said business sponsor. So was that somebody inside KPMG? Yes, yes. So that, 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 that business sponsor is somebody internally at KPMG who's, who's sponsoring the deal and basically quarterbacking it from their end. Is, is that about right? That's correct. And the, the, yeah. our, our company would literally kind of fold into his practice. So he was, he was going to own this whole thing. And so they wanted to make sure that there was a senior partner, equity partner in the firm that was going to own this thing, right? And, and gotcha. be compensated on the success of it. And so, you know, he said, I, I really, he said, Pete, I really don't know what the issue is, to be honest with you. And I said, well, who's ultimately making the decision? And he said, the vice chairman of KPMG. And I said, great. And give me a meeting. He's like, you want to meet with the vice chairman of KPMG? And I said, if you want to get the deal done, get me a meeting. I'll get the deal unstuck. Yeah. Whatever it is, we'll get it unstuck, right? We're yep. just too far, too far down the pike at this point. So he's like, okay. And so a week later, <laughs> got a meeting with the vice chairman of KPMG and go to New York and sit down and kind of build, do, you know, do the rapport thing. And we kind of got to it. And I said, you know, look, it seems like everything was marching on great. What, what's the concern? What's the issue? Right. And he said, look, Pete, he said, we buy a lot of companies. He said, we've never bought a company where the founder and the CEO didn't go with the deal. And so that's giving me heartburn. Why are you not going with the deal? Is there something I should know? And so my response was, and it was true, is I said, if you look at the book of business from the last 12 months, I wasn't involved in any one of the deals. I can tell you who the company is because I signed the contract. I couldn't tell you a single individual, the project sponsor, the, the signatory of the contract, nothing. I just know who the company was. You're buying the people that are, you know, the rainmakers and the revenue engine. And I said, that's not me. I'm pure overhead. Um, and I said, on top of that, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. This is my fourth company. And I said, I'm not going to make a good employee. And so even if you want me, <laughs> I'm going to be really expensive and I'm probably going to be a total pain in the butt. And he said, nope, I get it. I get it. We're good. We're good here. And so we closed, I think, 30 days later and no earnout. And, you know, we, we put a little bit of money at risk. I think it was a six month payout period that certain key employees were going to stay on in the organization and that all the customers would come over and, and both happened and it got paid out entirely. So including yeah, the nice. identification rollback. So 
Wow. Well, I mean, first of all, congratulations. I mean, what, what an amazing outcome. Um, I mean, no, out, no earnout alone is amazing, but then a, a 12 times EBITDA is, is, is just phenomenal. And can I ask, I mean, did, did you have, before all that happened, did you, did you think 12 times EBITDA, like before you started going into a process of selling or, you know, what, what, what number did you have in your mind before it all yeah. started? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, I had a number, I had a range of numbers and the range of numbers were based on, so one thing that I always tell clients is you don't separate price and terms. They go together, right? And so I had a range of numbers based on a certain set of terms and this was an all cash deal. So that was a one, you know, obviously the lower range of the number. And then I had a higher range of the number that if they wanted, uh, you know, a seller's note, if they wanted, you know, all these kind of clauses and earnouts or whatever, then there was going to be a higher number. And we ended up getting to somewhere kind of in the middle of what my range was, but I wasn't stuck on it. And I, um, to me, it was if I got a fair deal for me, the business owner and my other partner at the time, and I felt like the team was going to a good place, I was cool with that. And I would have taken a lower number to have my team go to a better place than, you know, somebody that gave a high number, but I know they were just going to spit out the team. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thanks for sharing that. It's it's interesting what you say there about the employees, and and you know I've had a lot of conversations with business owners over the years about this concept of legacy, and uh, and I, and I think when I say that, a lot of people think it means whether they've got their name on the door, and 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 I try to break it down in simple terms and say I, I kind of see it more as how do people feel about you when you've left the room. And and that could be your suppliers or your customers or your employees or whomever, right? Even your family. <laughs> so, you know, I just think that's a great example that you've given there where, you know, sometimes, you know, money's important, but it's not necessarily the, the only thing. Yep. So I, I guess if people are hearing this, it's the, the, the message is don't, don't wait till you're halfway through a deal to think about that sort of stuff because it could, uh, it can throw you into an, a bit of a, emotional spiral at times so um so yeah 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 and i think i think even as it comes to if there's any kind of a holdback and indemnification holdback and earn out a you know there's all kinds of ways to hold back money right um if that team that goes over to the new company if it's a really bad cultural clash and they're not performing right it will affect you monetarily at some point in time maybe not immediately but at some point in time it most likely will so yeah it's critical, just morally, professionally, and frankly, financially. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Can can I ask? Did you did you offer any incentive to those key staff? You know, a six or twelve month bonus or something for hanging around or anything like that? Yeah, we did two things. Um, so I asked KPMG to throw money in the pot as well. So they threw about yep. fifteen twenty percent of the deal. It did they didn't deduct it from my deal? They kind of added on top of that to make sure those people stayed. Um, and they did that for, there was a couple that were 12 months, 18 months, and 24 months for, I think, five or six of the key team members. And then I took a chunk of the money and also did the same thing for six months. And it was actually one of the biggest sticking points because they wanted me to sign up for a holdback on, for, I think they asked for two years, and then it kind of went to 18 months, and then it kind of went to 12 months. And I said, look, after about six months, they're, they're not mine anymore. I mean, yeah. you fully developed them in your culture. And at that point, it's your business. It's your job to hold on to them. And if you don't, 
I, like my job's done, right? It's like raising a child. When they're their teenager, you're kind of done. Um, and so we were able to negotiate that six months. So they got chunks at six months from me, essentially. And then they got more chunks 12, 12 18, and 24 months after that. And, yeah, and every, yeah. everybody is staying, but one. So. You just preempted my next question. Well, And isn't that great? I mean, clearly the work that's done in advance, you know, you saw the fit and, and, and to KPMG's credit, they fostered it and did the right thing, obviously, to, uh, to keep them there. So, Yeah, you know, and, and, and dealing with employees is obviously always a big, big deal, right, when, with these things, particularly for the, the business owners and CEOs that care for their teams. And my pitch to them was, from a personal professional development perspective, I can only give them so many opportunities with the size of the company we were. With this big company, right, it's a much bigger sandbox to play in, much bigger deals, much more complex everything. And so their ability to grow professionally and personally was much bigger than anything that I could ever do. And I, I think they thought in the beginning that was just a bunch of BS. Um, but I think, you know, once they looked at the training KPMG could offer and like the leadership about all this stuff, they're like, oh yeah, okay, we we kind of get it. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So yeah, you you become a small fish in a much bigger pond, but geez, that gives you a lot a lot of room for growth. Yep, exactly. I'm I'm curious when you went through the process with KPMG, were there were there other parties that were also taking a look at your business? They thought that. <laughs> <laughs> we we had some. We had two other companies that were kind of nipping at the edges. I I could tell they weren't. Earnest in their, in their consideration. After we were like 90% of the way through with KPMG, we did have one of those companies came back and tried to put the hard press on. And I'm like, look, you guys kind of passed six months ago. And if you were earnest then, you know, you would have had a seat at the table. But at this point, no, you know, I'm committed to these guys and I'm going to get, the, I'm going to get the deal done. So yeah. from what, you know, my kind of feigning, you know, competitive interest with KPMG, they thought for sure there was at least one other company involved. So. And and there is the lesson, right? You only need one actual buyer willing to pay you the reasonable rates to get a deal done, but uh, but certainly positioning it is important. I, I, I'm curious, Pete, because, um, I, you know, we've sold a, a number of professional service companies over the years. And, and one of the big things that I've found is that there's a lot of sensitivity around confidentiality and particularly if there's a competitor out there who's who's kind of taking an interest. I don't know if that's been an experience of yours as well, but I, I, have you got any thoughts around how to handle that type of thing? Yeah, so I mentioned that we had sold off other pieces of the business. So our the business that did the software reselling and we had some software products around it, we ended up selling that to a direct competitor. So this was a really interesting one. So um, what we ended up doing, even in terms of the data room, for those who are not, don't know what that is, is basically all the documents that an acquirer is going to look at in a secure portal that would be pertinent to, you know, doing due diligence and doing the acquisition. So we scrubbed everything. We made sure there were no customer names. There were no employee names. They, we kind of knew each other enough that we kind of knew a lot of the stuff anyway. But that was very concerning to us. And we knew if these guys walked away, you know, we were giving them some pretty significant confidential information. So we just did a pretty good job of redacting every document we could think of. I think there were some customer names that slipped through a couple of places, but uh, we also knew that their leadership team was pretty high integrity and that, you know, they wouldn't, we hoped they wouldn't take advantage of, you know, any confidential information they would have given us. And then said, you know, if the deal's kind of done and they could put it in escrow, then we'll go ahead and obviously they'll see the customer names and all this other kind of stuff at that point. So 
Yeah, okay. So there's a period between signing the deal, the contract, money's put in escrow, and there's a period there in between where they get to kind of double check everything that was redacted or, you know, that exactly. was held confidential. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, bit bit of bit of the black box scenario. So okay, yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. You know, Pete, I, I, I honestly could talk to you all day about this stuff. And uh and next time I'm in the States, I'm coming to Ohio to visit you. But uh Excellent. I'll welcome down there. Yeah, yeah. And so, yes, exactly. Vice versa when you come to Australia. Um t- tell me, um are you happy for people to be reaching out and connecting with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I I uh I love doing this. I started uh, a firm called Ask My Board about a year ago. I had been mentoring CEOs and entrepreneurs for probably 10 to 15 years and spending hours and hours kind of having these conversations. And a friend of mine came to me and said, you know, Pete, you're not valuing your time. Like you can charge for this stuff, right? And you've got, you know, you've <laughs> sold four companies for God's sakes and started two others. So you've got a lot of lessons you could teach people. So, um, so I just love doing this and I do, I still do a lot of this. I sit on a lot of advisory boards and yeah. I'd be willing to happy. Willing happy to help anybody out. So, no, that's brilliant. And so, and and so, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, Ask my board is your current firm. Where you, I, is that where you spend most of your time these days? Yeah, I actually have two firms. One is uh, an online voting company <laughs> called Votum. We do voting on blockchain. It has completely nothing to do with Ask My Board. And then just because of all these relationships and advisory boards and stuff that I do, um, Ask My Board is just one of my passions as well. So I got the yeah. I got the two companies. That are stocked. Yeah, so so I think when you say voting, voting, everyone thinks is a dominion, <laughs> you know, and all the <laughs> geez, there's been a lot in the press about all that sort of stuff. So I, I look forward to hearing how voting comes along, and and and, crazy, and if you are listening to this US elections, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, absolute yeah. madness, and I note that it's still going on. So it anyway, is. but um, so look for those who who are interested, um, you you can reach out to Pete. He's certainly on uh, on LinkedIn. Um, his his uh, website is askmyboard.com. Uh, and you'll see a lot of really useful information on there about you know building value and thinking about your exit and certainly exiting on your own terms. Um, we'll put some links in the show notes. So um, and if you do reach out to Pete on LinkedIn, please put put a little note there to let him know that you you heard him interviewed on the podcast. So he has a little context as to to maybe why you're reaching out. And um, yeah, Pete, thank you so much for for coming on the show and and spending some time and, and sharing your story with us. Thanks, Simon. This has been a lot of fun and happy to do it. And thank you for all that you do, because I think we're both trying to, to really help entrepreneurs just get the best deal and do the right thing and do it and do it once and don't screw it up, right? Because you're going to get one shot. So. Absolutely. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week.
Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.